Hey Trojan fans, it's time to get into the huddle with the Peristyle Podcast. The Peristyle Podcast is your weekly ticket to USC football and recruiting news. Don't forget, you can download the podcast 24-7 at our new website, peristylepodcast.com. And now, here's the host of the Peristyle Podcast, uscfootball.com publisher, Ryan Abraham. Hello, Trojan fans, and welcome to episode number 272 of the Parastyle Podcast. Today is May 27th, 2013. I want to wish everyone a very happy Memorial Day. We've got a very special show this week on the Parastyle Podcast. We're going to give Coach Harvey Hyde and Dan Weber the week off. A very special guest, former USC football player Bobby DeMars, who's doing a great-looking documentary about the NCAA and the business of amateurism. So we're going to talk to him a lot about that project and his former career as a USC Georgia football player. Uh, if you have any comments or questions, we're going to get back to those next week. Please email us, podcast at uscfootball.com or call us at 206-888-6755. Leave a voicemail and we will play it on the air starting next week. You can also go to parastylepodcast.com and leave us a voicemail. Click on the left side of the page. Leave us a voicemail. We will play it on the podcast. But let's get right to to Bobby Demard. If you don't know, he played for actually three different head coaches during his USC football playing career as a defensive lineman. Ended his career with Pete Carroll. This will be his second documentary he is making. We welcome in Bobby Demard. What's going on, Bobby? How you doing? Hey Ryan, how's it, how's it going, man? Thanks for, so much for having me on the show. Hey, anytime is fun. Uh, I know we've kept in touch over Facebook and stuff. I'm not. Are you a, a a Twitter guy? Have you? I haven't seen you on Twitter yet. You know, I'm about to get into the whole tweet world. <laughs> I, I, you know, I have to get into there just to help promote the project. And you know, I understand it's one of those things. I feel like my dad, like when I was trying to tell him about Facebook, it's that I have that gap right there that I'm fighting for too long that I'm just gonna have to accept it. That's right. Well, hopefully people remember Bobby DeMars. Uh, definitely, if you've seen him off the field, very funny guy. Uh, a lot of different people have told me stories that when they've they've run into him over the years. And uh, now he's making a, a documentary, an NCAA documentary called The Business of Amateurs, along with Zach Jerome, who's a former uh, podcast guest as well. And he's doing that on Kickstarter. We're going to talk about all that stuff here in a little bit. So we want to get get an idea of what's going on with this project and how everyone else can help out and what's behind it. It's a really interesting uh, subject matter. And I think it's something that's, you know, I think it's going to be really going to take off. Some writers I've talked to said they're excited to see uh, when this comes out, what it's going to look like and stuff. But before we get into that, Bobby, I just wanted to like maybe give people some background of you. Know, of you. How would they have known you? What, where were you in your USC days and, and what, what was your career like there? Um, I, I came in, I, I was the first recruit of John, John Robinson's last recruiting class. Okay. So I actually committed to USC before my senior year in high school. And uh, he had just signed a five-year contract extension. So it's like, hey, man, I'm going to have the same coach for all five years. It doesn't get any better than this. <laughs> uh, and then, you know, they had a little bit of a lackluster year, and, you know, Mike Riley was a scapegoat. And then I came in as a freshman. And once again, we had just a bit of an off year and, you know, didn't go to a bowl game. And then everybody was gone. It was a clean house. So it was like everybody that brought you in was gone. And that was the first time I saw the business side of athletics because I thought that there was this layer of loyalty that existed and all of a sudden everything that I had perceived was wrong. And then Paul Hackett came in and those are the years that I try to black out <laughs> <laughs> because uh, 
Ooh, I mean, that guy, <laughs> I'll tell you, like, he moved me to D-line, and all of a sudden, you know, Ogeron's first day coaching is like my first day at D-line, so you can only imagine, you know, Bobby D. And, uh, <laughs> you know, it's just it's the scariest deep southern voice. And Hackett, in the second week, he called me into his office, and uh, uh, well, I, had, I had to set an appointment. That was the difference. John Robinson, you can walk in and talk to him anytime. You know, uh-huh. I remember one time John Robinson came up to me, and he slipped me a $5 bill, and he says, Bobby, you're not hungry. Go get yourself something to eat. And I was like going, oh, is this how this works around here? And then he pulled me back in. He goes, and bring me back a chicken sandwich. And the chicken sandwich was 10 bucks. <laughs> I ended up buying him lunch and getting lunch. It wasn't even a, it wasn't a money handshake at all. It was an errand, you know. It so cost you Robinson money. was cool like that. Hackett, you had to set an appointment. Um, which was just weird. And then, you know, he, was, he, he tried to run it like a pro program and just kind of disconnected himself from the players a little bit, which was a big mistake. And two different times, I waited two hours for that appointment, and he canceled. Wow. And then finally, I meet with him, and he sits down, and he says, so I hear you're transferring. And, I'm, you know, I, I don't know what he's talking about. Why would I transfer? I would never breathed that thought to anybody because it never even crossed my mind. How was that even possible? And he's saying, because if you're going to transfer, now would be the time to do it. Because if you wait until uh, if you wait till fall camp starts, you'll have to miss that year and then the additional two years, and you only have one year left. And my mind's just exploding, right? Like, I'm, oh, my God. It's like the room gets longer, and I'm trying to, like, figure out what's going on. I said, no, I, look, I, I came here for the business and the cinema school. There's nothing that would make me want to leave this school. And that, and that was true. There was nothing they could do to make me quit, even though I felt like over the next three years, that's exactly what he tried to make me do. Uh, and what I found out later was, you know, coaches do this all the time when they come in, because if they can get players to leave on their own volition or get players to leave because of a medical redshirt, then they get a full scholarship back. Right. And that player then becomes representative of their class. Whereas if I have a certain amount of respect and they somewhat attribute it to Robinson in some capacity, I don't know, some, it's a bunch of political BS. And uh, that was the first moment where I kind of felt like a pawn in the system, where here I am for an education, and, and this guy is telling me that, you know, I've got other options. And I don't know what, what that was all about. Uh, and I didn't understand why he didn't see me as an asset. I mean, he'd only been there for three weeks, but apparently he didn't see me fit into his scheme. Um, and then Pete Carroll came in, and wow, what a guy. There's nothing more you can really say about uh, a coach like that. I mean, after you go through the recruiting process and then you play under as many coaches that I had, that cause when you know when you lose a coach, you lose everybody for the most part, except for a few coaches. So, you know, in those five years, I was involved with like probably fifty something coaches. Wow. And um, uh, Pete Carroll one day. I mean, the second week, I remember we were supposed to run, and it was raining, so we had to go in the gym, and that was always terrible. That meant we had to do ladders until everybody threw up. It would always be terrible. <laughs> I'd rather be running in the mud. And we get in there, and Pete separates everybody in the teams of three. We're like, oh, what's going on, right? And he separates everybody in these teams. And he, he had a timed three-on-three basketball tournament that went on for a full hour. That was just a really good workout. It was teamwork. It was camaraderie. And one team was just destroying everybody. It had, like, Antoine Simmons and Antoine Harris and Frank Strong. It had, like, three really good guys that were doing, like, windmill dunks and just <laughs> killing everybody. And at the end... Pete Carroll comes up and says, all right, we're going to play them. And it's Pete Carroll, it's Kennedy Pola, who at the time was probably like 300 pounds, and the O-line coach, who's like 400 pounds. And, and, and it was like, wow, you know, how cool is this? Coach is going to humble himself and get his butt kicked in front of us. You know, how awesome is that? 
And that didn't happen. Coach Carroll destroyed them. They were running picks, and, and he was six out of seven from the three-point line. Wow. Not even counting them as two points. And destroyed them 11 to two. And, and it, was, it was just like you were watching some classic movie where, like, you know, these guys, you're waiting for it to be, you know. It was like when somebody finally beat the Harlem Globetrotters. You know, you're like going, oh, my God, you know. That's amazing. And there was just something cool about that. Pete Carroll had a vibe about him where, you know, he came out on the field before practice. He was there because he loved it. And it was genuine. And, you know, he respected the intellect of his players and would, would teach them the defense in a way that allowed them to understand what the coach's game plan was, which you don't see a lot of that. So I had a lot of respect for Pete well, and that... what he was able to do for SC. And I, I, it, I was not at all surprised when they started winning championships as soon as yeah. I left. That's amazing. I know there was a lot of stories about Pete Carroll and those noon basketball games and, and, and how competitive it was. But I didn't realize he was good enough to be able to beat the best basketball players on the, oh, on the football team. This was like team. the first workout. It's like, did you ever see Wildcats with Goldie Hawn? Oh, yeah. She's like, yeah, she's just like, a, she's the next marathon runner, and they don't know it. So she's like, if you guys can beat me, and she just outruns them. And you don't realize <laughs> that this guy's not a great coach. This guy's a great athlete. Like, he's a, actually, he's not a pretty good, he's a great athlete. I mean, and not just for his age, he just schooled these kids who were probably like the best in their high school or something, you know? That's good. <laughs> yeah, classic. Uh, well, it's not, I mean, obviously, sounds like you had some ups and downs in your career, but it seems overall it was fun. It was a, a worthwhile experience for you to be a college football player. Absolutely. You know, and, and that's, and that's the, the element that kind of ties back into the doc because it's really conflicting because, there, you know, there's a sense of privilege that, that the college athlete has. And, and, you know, and when you're walking around campus and, you know, you get your sweats on and you want people to know who you are. And uh, I actually did the opposite because I, since I was in the business in the cinema school, I didn't want to be prejudged by my professors. Right. Um, I was proud to be out there, but I, you know, once you get your paper held <laughs> because they want to study it for plagiarism three times, I was like, okay, maybe you guys don't need to know how to play football. You know? <laughs> so it was kind of a, yeah, it was kind of a double-edged sword. Um, but being able to run out of the, the tunnel every year is something that uh, you can't really place a value on or compare it to. And, and to be a part of a school like SC and the Trojan family, uh, because it really is a lifelong commitment. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, my experiences and my love for the school are the fine line that, you know, I walk when I'm trying to do this documentary because, you know, it's not about making SC look bad. It's not about, oh, SC doesn't do this or that. Um, it's actually just the opposite. SC is one of the few schools that uh, takes care of a tremendous amount of former players and their injuries that affect them later on in life. Uh, and it's Davis. um guy I played D-line with at SC, he hears he me pretty bad uh, at the end of his sophomore year when he was going in as preseason All-American, and you know they brought him back a little fast, and it led to a degenerative knee issue that uh, didn't let him play in the NFL, and I know he was always bitter about that, but he had a he had on-the-job injury that, you know, caused him to wreck his ACL again, you know, because your, your, your knee is not uh, as stable as it used to be, you know, the older you get, especially when you're a big guy and you're top-heavy. And uh, he hurt his knee, and the school took care of it. And, you know, they don't publicize it. They don't say, rah, 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 look at me. Uh, but I kind of wish they did so that they would push pressures on other schools to do it. And I wish it could become something that is more public, you know, in a way to maybe allocate a certain amount of funding every year uh, to go to these, not just the injuries of our current players, but to, to pay for the insur insurance on their future costs because, um because it's the Trojan family, and, uh, you know, it's not that once you get out, they don't care about you. I, I don't think I've ever felt like that. But, 
you know, I don't, I'm missing PCL ligaments in both of my knees, and I have severe shoulder and neck problems from, um, you know, various other injuries for the year. And you can talk to any guy that's played three to five years, and you can guarantee that he's had a pretty bad injury at some point in his life. Wow. And uh, it, 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 the problem isn't just that all these coaches are overpaid and this or that. But the reality is, is that there's kind of a glut that takes place in the athletic department in general. Um, and there's, there's a lot of supporters and there's a lot of people that make this unit run. And I just think that before we prioritize ourselves on giving ourselves this big bonus for the Rose Bowl and all these other things and all this money that comes in, that we've got to find a way to take care of these guys. Because the football team is the lifeblood of the school. People don't understand. They do intuitively because they watch it. And when do you ever see a, an ad for a college? It's only when there's a game on. Right. And, that's, and obviously they're, they're trying to, to reach that audience. And college athletics is the best way for the university to promote itself. It always has. Um, and that's why the NCAA is a three-corp nonprofit. It's because it can, it's a consortium of all the schools, which you know, is academic and educational pursuits. Um, but there's still a major discrepancy in between the fact that they're a nonprofit and their original purposes were for the health, and now they've completely abandoned that line of thought. And so I'm hoping that with some of the stories that we're going to tell from different athletes at USC and other schools that, you know, we can shine a little bit of light on the truth. Um, this guy, Ramogi Huma, started the National Collegiate Players Association, which is kind of a they, – they act as if – like, like a union. They're not an official union for the players, but they're, they're trying to create and be a voice for, uh, for the student-athlete, for the collegiate student-athlete, because you really don't have rights. You sell your name. You're not allowed to sell your name. Uh, the school has the right to do that. Uh, you're not allowed to get a job um, unless it's limited to under $3,000 a year. And, you know, I, I don't understand why those, those limitations aren't placed on on any other people that get scholarships, even a music scholarship, they're not limited from playing in Carnegie Hall or doing whatever it is that they need to do. Um, and they, they, you know, the, the big argument is that there's not enough money. And, and, and I think that's uh, hogwash because at the end of the day, you know, uh, yeah, football and basketball takes care of all the other sports, of course. I mean, Title IX is there. And, you know, women's soccer does 44 hours a week. You know, it has more concussions than any other thing. There's enough money to take care of those kids, too. It's not just about football and basketball. It's about putting that first before we talk about let's build a program and let's do all these things. Because the value isn't beyond just ticket sales and jerseys and all the other things and the TV contracts. The value comes in the fact that when you have a winning season and your school gets about 30% of an increase in applications and – because of that increase in applications, it allows the school to cherry-pick better students. And you could probably draw a line in the correlation of the championships that FC's won and the growth that they've had in the program in the last decade to the growth uh, in the quality of the school. I mean, we're the top 20 school now. And there's a lot of things that have happened to the school that have helped that. But you can't say that the uh, football program hasn't been a little bit a part of that. Yeah, maybe a big part of that. Uh, well, let's talk about the the documentary. And you, you mentioned the the feeling of the tunnel, and that's I think it's a great opening shot on the website. Where before you play this video, the business of amateurs, it's like a five minute video. You get it gives you a better idea of what the documentary is going to be about, and it's a, a great shot of what the players would see coming out of the tunnel uh, there at the Coliseum. But um, 
I guess maybe, I, I don't know, if you want to start with what the, the Kickstarter thing is, or if you want to go into yeah. what the documentary does. Yeah, let me explain a little about what Kickstarter is. Um, it's, it's an online uh, source for, for, for what's called, it's called crowdsourcing. So you, you, you could start a fashion line, you could have a product. Uh, in this case, it's a documentary film with a cause behind it. And if you believe in the product, if you believe in the cause, then you can pledge a certain amount of money, and that pledge isn't used until we reach the goal. So there, there's nothing at risk of the money just going to waste because we didn't reach our goal. It's only used in that capacity. So it's an all-or-nothing situation, and um, there's rewards for every pledge level. So, for instance, if you give $50, you'll get a digital copy of the film, uh, you get a signed DVD, you get a special thanks credit, uh, all the way up until you know you can get uh, associate producers or uh, executive producer credits, uh, depending on what your pledge level is. Oh, cool. Okay, and then so if you go, I don't know if there's an easy website to, if it's Kickstarter.com and then you have to search, or how how would people find it? Yeah, you can either go to Kickstarter.com and if you just put NCAA into the search engine, it should be the first thing that pops up, or okay. if you just put Kickstarter and NCAA into Google, it'll be the first thing that pops up. Okay, so they can find it there, and then it'll show. The number of backers, where you are, and your your goal, how much is pledged, how many days. It's a it's a timed goal, though. So um, exactly, 20, you know, we're, about a we're month left. three days in right now. We've got ten percent of our goal, so we're uh, on track, and uh, we're hitting a little bit of a little bit of uh, publicity next week that'll hope carry it up. And obviously, uh, anybody that's listening to this, it, it, it's not just about supporting. Sharing is caring as well. <laughs> so anybody that you know that is interested in this topic or interested in being a part of the reform and uh, you know, having their name in the in the credits for the history of of, of a film that is hoping to create change, uh, it's a great opportunity. And I back Kickstarter projects all the time. And and sometimes it's a buddy that you know has a band that they're trying to get an album made, and uh, it's a little bit more self-serving because it's a buddy you help out. And sometimes it's something that you don't even know the person, and you get behind it because uh, it's something that really aligns with your principles and something that you want to do, or it's a really cool product that you want to have before everybody else does. So. Uh, Kickstarter got a lot of awareness last month with uh, the Veronica Mars movie that they just funded there for about $10 million. Wow. And, uh, okay. and a Zach Braff movie that they just funded for like $6 million. So well, we'll, the, was, we'll put in a, uh, a pledge as well from USCfootball.com so when we get done with this. So we'll try to oh. we'll try to help you out a little bit, Bobby. Well, fantastic. <laughs> I appreciate that. And hopefully our a listeners will as well. Oh, yeah. Every time, you know, you go up on there and you see a little pledge – but it's someone you know or you don't know. It makes you a little weepy because you know someone out there is getting behind what you're trying to do. And at the end of the day, look, documentaries are a labor of love. They're, it's it's a lot of work, um, and and you know you you never know officially when you're done because you're always trying to sort out all the stories and all the things that you get in the end. But in the end, it's all about trying to create change and awareness for something. Uh, and you know, our focus isn't about should we be paying players. You know, we're going to talk about the money. We're going to talk to economists and uh, talk about the values and, of an average athlete and, and all those elements that come into play. But we're really going to be focusing on the health of the athlete and how we can create reform uh, and, and get that NCAA's focus back on it. Because, you know, Mark Emmert has already publicly said that that's not their responsibility. And um, I think if we got a few schools to start making changes, and, and what a great recruiting crew. I'll tell you what, I want somebody to go to, uh, I would want my kid to go to a school where I knew his long-term injuries were taken care of. Yeah, that's actually a good point about as far as recruiting goes. And yeah, I mean, hey, of... if you've got to spin it that way to make it happen, <laughs> why, 
Yeah, whatever. that'll get USC fans' attention. Like, oh, it could help recruiting? Yes. Okay. I'll... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. Yeah, I think we just upped the amount of the USC football players. Right. That's awesome. <laughs> well, the, the name of it is The Business of Amateurs. And I, I just re- watching that video, when amateurism comes up, I, I didn't even know some of the history of that. But it seems like that's a, a core part of this and what, what really the amateur status is and, and how it, I guess it's evolved over the years. Yeah, the backdrop, I mean, a lot of people think amateurism is this, it's, it's like this, uh, there's something pure about it. You know, it's like, you ever seen the greatest game ever played with um, Shia LaBeouf where it's, you know, it's all amateurs and golf and gentlemen. It's, it's this whole, uh, you know, feel and as if there's something pure behind it. And, and it's, you know, I wish I could say it's that, but amateurism started out as a separation of class. What happened was um, the aristocrats back in uh, mid-1800s Europe they didn't want all the working class people. I mean, working class meant you worked seven days a week, 15 hours a day. That's how it was back then. And if you could get paid for your sport or your leisure, as they called it, then that would allow the working class to get good at it and beat them. So it was a way for the aristocrats to basically keep the working class under their thumb and remind them that they're not as good as them, even in their leisure pursuits. And that's how it started. And when it spread uh, and came to the States and we adopted you know, all the sports and uh, you know, rugby became football, and uh, tennis state tennis. The <laughs> uh, cricket became baseball, and all these things. We adopted amateurism as well. Uh, the Olympic Committee that adopted amateurism in 1896 wasn't actually, um, you know, they they were propagating the same values that had come before that based upon uh, those elements. Uh, the original Olympics from the like old school days was all about the prize. I mean, when you were competing in the Olympics back in the ancient ancient Olympics. It was always for a trophy. In fact, the trophy would be broken off and used as currency throughout the year. That was the whole thing. It was all about the juice and people giving wealth to these athletes that they want to be next to. Um, and that just shows you the markets of uh, the economic value of what those guys were then. And so amateurism started out as a separation of class. And when Teddy, Teddy Roosevelt started the NCAA in 1906, um, you know, there was, a, there was a, almost 20 deaths a year in college football at the time. Wow. And his nephew got mangled in a game. Uh, they used to have a thing called the flying wedge, and they'd all lock arms and they'd all run down the field. And, you know, you, you had your wedge buster, somebody that's still here would come in. It was basically a kamikaze position. You just run in and try to break it up so somebody else can make the play. It's a really selfless move, but it led to a lot of deaths and a lot of injuries. So when the NCAA, which it wasn't called that when they started, but it eventually became called that. They had a more ridiculous acronym before that. <laughs> um, they they allowed college football to evolve into a safer sport. They created the helmets, they created the forward pass, they took the end zone out of the, uh, the goal post out of the end zone. They did all these things that, that, that made the sport safer. And then everything changed in the 50s when television became more paramount and television contracts. And the NCAA handled all those contracts into the 80s until Supreme Court ruling allowed schools to be able to handle that on their own. So that kind of became a dividing point where you know the NCAA is now more of an overseer of all these universities, it's really a consortium. Um, and, and yeah, they, they're, more, they're more rule makers and taskmasters than anything else. They don't play the same role that they used to. Um, but I'm hoping that somehow we can, because I think that's, what, that's the best way to keep the sport pure, is to make sure we're taking care of our guys. You know, you look at somebody like Jim Thorpe, you know, back in the day, he, he, the Olympic Committee took his medals back. And, uh, you know, he's considered one of the greatest athletes of all time. The guy's a major football, baseball player, won a ton of Olympic gold medals in many sports. And he played a little bit of minor baseball uh, in a couple of games where back in the day you would just 
you would sign a fake name so you could get paid. All the guys did it, but he didn't know you were supposed to do that. So they found a record of him playing two games for like six bucks, and they took his medals away. Wow. And, you know, he died, uh, he died uh, you know, shameful and a drunk. And, and in the late 70s, they restored his medals and, you know, the value of his greatness, and they brought him back because the Olympic Committee had changed when Prefontaine and others chal- and the AAA challenged the Olympic Committee on what athletes were allowed to do, you know, in, in, in terms of selling their likeness to get funding so they could live. You know, rather than just being peasants that are trying to somehow train through it all. Um, and so if you look at amateurism, it, in the history of everything, it, it only exists in its current model in U.S. college athletics. You know, last week I just ta- saw a picture of, uh, you know, David Beckham retiring, right? Yeah. And they showed uh, his original photo from when he signed with Manchester United. And he's 14 in the picture. Wow. <laughs> I mean, they, the kid, like, just hit puberty. You know, and he's he's signing with Manchester United, and nobody's batting an eye because they understand this is what this kid's career is going to be in. And you know, you see, baseball is a good example because you see people that get offered money to go to the minors, uh, as well as scholarships. And generally, the ones that go to college are the ones that are motivated and qualified to go to college, um, whereas the other ones obviously want the money. And if college is something they want to do, they can do it later. But I don't see what's wrong with somebody having a career and trying to set that up. I'm just saying if it's going to be about education, then they have to be make it more about education because there's guys that are coming in that if if you if you can't if you're not qualified to go to a school uh, and and be in a university and somehow you you're able to just finagle and get your way through somehow. I mean, how how do you think you're supposed to actually use that degree? It's amazing how many of my former players, you know, I catch up and see them on Facebook. None of them are doing anything that's degree-related. I wouldn't say none, but a good amount of them aren't. And I can understand that because they don't have the same skills and the elements. And, you know, I, I had an internship every summer on top of, you know, working out and having to go to summer school uh, only so that you could get a stipend from the school to pay for your living expenses. It's not like I needed summer school, you know, I, I mean, it's stupid. There's these little loopholes. Like, I'm going to go take a dance class over the <laughs> summer so the school can give me 600 bucks a month so I can live in my $600 a month rent place, you know. And by the time I graduated, I had, uh, I had 15000 in debt. That, and, and that's not me going out and, I mean, when do you have time when you're a player? You know, it's 80 hours a week with between school and football, 50 weeks out of the year. So that was for my cell phone bill. That was for, you know, a couple of dinners with my girlfriend, you know, buying a jacket, like just stuff, basic stuff. You know, we're not going to the club and buying bottles or whatever, <laughs> you know. It's like, like you go to training table, and this is, this is what I'm talking about, the false perception of privilege. It's like we have training table. We have this great place where we get to eat and we get all this food, and it's awesome, right? And the reality is that only happens for 30 days out of the spring, okay, when, when spring football is actually going on. And then it happens throughout the whole semester uh, in the first year. And that's not like nonstop you get to eat all day. That's one meal, right? So you would get three, four to-go things and just stack them and fill them up so you could eat the next day. <laughs> and this happens at every single school across the way. And, it's, and, and, and there, you know, if, if there was a way to give them at least a reasonable stipend or, or you know, the, the problem is if they make them employees, is where they run into that whole problem with the nonprofit status and what they can really do with the money. So I, I understand that some of that stuff is a little, still a little bit of a gray area and still a little bit touchy. Um, but I still think they can create safe passage for players with agents. Um, now, what do you mean and, by safe passage? 
Well, they, they have all these rules where, you know, if, if a player wants to be pursued uh, by a school and, and they're interested in them, rather than having them go behind doors and do the things that they want to do, if there was an open environment where that could happen, and they, they, they set that back until after they're done playing football to avoid setting up relationships for the wrong reasons. But I think if you did it out in the open and, and kept everything clear, um, all of a sudden it's like you're – because there's a market for these guys. Uh, the, the NCPA just did a report with, with, with Drexler University, and uh, they figured out the average uh, value of a basketball player and, and a Division One football player after you subtract their education. And the average for the, basketball, the football player is half a million dollars over their four-year career. Wow. And the average for a basketball player is a million. So, unbelievable. Uh, you know, look at, look at what happened with basketball in the last couple of years in, in the fact that they changed that rule that you can't go straight pro. That you, so now you got all these guys that are one and done. And, and you know, they don't really care that, oh, it hurts their graduation rate and, and there's more scandals because these guys are more valuable and are going to make a bunch of money. So I understand it a little bit, but not that I would do it, but I kind of understand it. <laughs> Yeah. In, in terms of like you're making them go to the school, and then at every single one of those schools, you see a 30% ticket increase. Okay, so obviously somewhere it's about the money. I mean, the reason we don't have a bowl championship series, I mean, we wait we wait six weeks for a game that goes nowhere. Okay, <laughs> the sponsorship bowl event is what it is, and 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 there's nothing to that. Whereas now that they're aligning this, uh, you know, the, the division and they're setting it up. Notice how they're setting it up in a way that makes sure that all the conferences are taken care of evenly. That was what the discrepancy was, to make sure that everybody gets the money, that the main conferences, not everybody, but that the main six get the money. So that's how the BCS was set up, and that ended up being what's preventing uh, a championship series from happening. It's all about the money, but every ad says it's not about the money. So right. Whatever I just wish says it's not about the money. <laughs> yeah, it always says it's about the money, yeah. <laughs> of course it is. Come on. You wouldn't have coaches... You know, coaches are making $7 million a year because that's what their value is um, in the market when, with you, what they're doing. Yeah. And if you look at what, um, you know, the average uh, football coach is paid four, four times what the school president does. Wow. <laughs> so, and, and look, once again, we're talking about value and corporation, but that right there points to the fact that the lifeblood of the value in the school is derived from somebody that's wearing a white visor, you know? Yeah. And shorts every day, it's, you know, and, and I don't know. It's 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 an interesting thing, and and I'm not saying being a college coach is easy, especially being a head coach. You have a lot of things to manage. You know, you got a lot of young people that are coming of age, and uh, you know, you're forced to be a father figure. Um, and the ones that are good at it, you know, it doesn't seem like they're forced to do it. Uh, <laughs> and and I don't, you know, I would never want to be a coach or be in that position. And I can understand their values, but. I think if there was a way to put a cap on coaching and use that money for better purposes, I, and I'm not saying that's the solution. It's one of the solutions. Uh, it's one of the things that could be done. And with the new tax law that got passed this last year, it's one of the things that I think Congress is trying to start to move in a direction of. But, you know, the lobbyists run D.C. now. So if you don't have the money to get a lobbyist to influence your cause, then you don't really have a, you don't really have a shot. Yeah. So that's why this documentary, I'm hoping, can create awareness. We're going to tell some player stories that uh, uh, are unbelievable. Um, Scott Ross, you know, the guy that played linebacker next to Junior Seau. Uh, Junior Seau, we all know what happened to him last year, and a lot of people are, are sitting and wondering why and how could something 
like this happen? And why would somebody that has the world by the tail do something like that? It's 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 incongruable, like to to the, to the average person. But as a former player, I I totally understand because I've seen firsthand the repercussions of of what some of the long-term head injuries that come into play. And it has me scared to death, you know, of what my next 10 years, because that'll be kind of the determining point of how much it really affected me. And, uh, you know, Scott Ross is a linebacker. He played at SC for four years, banged heads, you know, got knocked out of a couple Rose Bowl games, like unconscious, and, uh, you know, only played one year in the pros, special teams for the Saints, you know. And, And the guy's 44 years old, and, you know, he's onset dementia. Wow. And, and, you know, he's never played, this isn't a pro athlete. This isn't somebody, and this is somebody that we need to take care of. This is the guy that put his body on the line for the school. And, and, you know, now, you know, as he gets older and it becomes harder for him and, and, and the amount of, you know, uh, respect that you lose when you're put in that position, uh, you know, it's scary. And, and, you know, I'm not saying that SC's ignoring all this stuff. They're probably not even aware of a lot of the problems. Because most of the players don't feel that they need to push their burden off onto the school, um, you know, because there's nothing there. There's nothing public that says that there's something for these guys. Yeah. So they do all they can to do what they can to get into the pros. But um, I just think it's ironic that somebody that's a wedge buster, and that's his job, is to go down there and kamikaze, break up the wedge and give up his body, is somebody that's disposable in some capacity because he can get injured. And that's, but that's, he's not considered an employee, but that's his job. Yeah. You know, Kent Waldrop uh, is a guy that got hurt doing exactly that. He broke his neck in the 1974 game against Alabama. And, uh, you know, head coach Alabama, you know, what's his name? Uh, Bear Bryant. Bear Bryant, you know, yeah. um, Spent a lot of time with him in the hospital. He felt incredibly guilty for it. And, uh, at some point, Kent, you know, sued the NCAA to try to get support. And in the end, he lost because he's not deemed to be an employee. And that really became the landmark case um, that said, all right, it's not, it's not our responsibility. You're a volunteer. Your scholarship is renewable every year as a volunteer. And, you know, I, I, I just wish there was a way to change the wording, a way to keep the purity, um, you know, I, I, I really don't think that if if we put somebody on a billboard from the team and he gets paid ten grand and goes into some account, I mean, he's a full-grown man, you know, that he's being used to promote and he gets a certain amount of money for that, I, I really don't think fans would be against that because it would be yeah. public. It, it, it's, I think it's the behind-the-scenes t- stuff that bothers fans. You know, the players that are taking money and, and you know, the $50 handshakes or the free cars or the house benefits, you know. No, but sense. you know, when you come from, a, I come from a, I came from a middle class, uh, upper middle class family, and if I needed a little help, they could send it. Uh, some, most of the guys on the team, not even anywhere near that position. And so, when you have a situation like Reggie, uh, where, you know, it was done through his family and approached through them, and and you know, you're living in a situation where you're living in poverty, and your son is out there being put on billboards and, you know, put all over the place. And, and it's kind of like, well, can't we get some of that now so we're not just sitting here, like, in poverty? And I think there's a way to, to, to take away some of the transparency uh, involved in the whole process and, and, and try to make it a little bit better and still keep the purity in the game. Well, I think there's a way to do it. I'm not saying I have all the answers. 
but I'm going to try to find them. <laughs> so when, when you're finished, I mean, there, well, obviously there's going to be a lot about the NCAA in this, and, and USC fans in general aren't uh, huge fans, I guess you would say, of yep. the NCAA, like you mentioned, the Reggie Bush stuff. And how Which is the, funny because SC is the NCAA. Yeah, they're part of it. <laughs> you know? Every, every and, school. And, that's, and, 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 you know, I, I, I like the fact that it's like, there's hey, they're them and we're us, but it, unfortunately it's like technically SC is a part of the NCAA. It's part of the deal. Yeah. You know, and they built this thing. It's like they built the Titanic in the Panama Canal, and they can't turn it around now, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, uh, and they're trying to figure out how to do that. And is there an easy way to do that? I don't think there is. I mean, the system is built. It's going to have to start with something that everybody can agree on. And I think, I think players' health and rights is at the forefront. And when everyone saw Kevin Ware snap his leg, you know, March Madness, and uh, I was literally in the middle of cutting the sizzle reel for this doc. And uh, as much as my heart was breaking at that moment for that kid, a part of me was really glad because of the awareness that it's going to generate. Because people don't know what's going to happen to this guy. He's going to be an afterthought, you know, or, or you know, what's going to happen to that kid, uh, you know, Eric LeGrand from, from Rutgers that broke his neck last year. Yeah. You know, they do all these public things and they create these funds and, they do a rah, rah, rah thing, and it's all for the good. And a lot of these guys get taken care of. But, you know, what about the guy that breaks his hip his freshman year? And, uh, you know, 10 years down the road, the, the degenerative condition of his hip creates a problem in his knee for the compensation that's taken place. And now his knee has to be redone. And because of that, he loses his job. And that's something that actually happened to a guy I played with. And one of the guys is whose story we're going to tell. Oh. And... Um, you know, try to figure out, is there a way to keep this from happening? Because there's enough money there. You know, you could say, what about high school? Kids get hurt in high school. That's true, but there's not that level of money in high school. So how can you try to even go after something like that? If there yeah. was a way to do it, it's obviously it would be, <laughs> I'd be behind it. But there's enough money. You know, they just did a $10.8 billion a year deal a couple of years ago for the March Madness tournament. Um, and that's three weeks every year. <laughs> that's a billion dollars every year just from that. Okay. And to set up a, a health insurance pol policy for these long-term injuries wouldn't take that much effort, but I think it would draw some concern uh, from the NCAA in terms of, does that mean that they're leaping one more step towards having an employee? Um, I'll tell you what, I, you know, I, I've had a few companies and, and one of them was trying to decide, you know, are we going to be have independent contractors? Are we going to have employees? And there's this list you look at of all the different things. Like, do you tell them where to be and when? You know, okay, yes, then they're an employee. And if you check two out of the things on this 12 list, then they're an employee. And we were borderline, you know, it was a tutoring company. There was a lot you could do with that. Most people do um, independent contractors. But we were dealing with high-risk kids, so I wanted to make sure our insurance was tight. So we did employees. Uh, I didn't want to worry about, you know, that there being a discrepancy down the line. And if you look at the NCAA and you answer all those questions, it's amazing. Like eight out of the 11 are yes. So they would definitely <laughs> be considered employees according to the, the tax rules. And all oh, that. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> you know, they tell you where to be, for how long to be. Do they, you know, every, every single thing on that list, I'm like, yes, yes, like two maybes, no, and the rest, yes. <laughs> and you're like, okay, but... Once again, when you're as big as the NCAA is, you have a lot of different, uh, you know, forms of power. And the fact of the matter is it's as big as it is. And I'm not saying that we need to topple the NCAA. I think it needs to be reformed 
in a way that it reflects its original intentions. Well, that, right now, there's a lot of fire. The NCAA is certainly under a lot of fire. I, kind of, I mean, it didn't start with USC, but that's certainly been a big part of it. And other schools and scandals and all kinds of stuff going on. I mean, do you see some kind of change happening? I mean, obviously, we haven't, you haven't even created the, the documentary yet, but do, do you think that's an achievable goal to be able to come through and have create some sort of reform in the NCAA? You know, I think awareness is the precipice of change. Um, you know, I don't know if we're going to create something, some big thing by the time the doc's done and have that be a part of the story. Uh, but a good, a good example is a, a friend of the film called Dear Zachary, uh, which is just an amazing film that I saw at Slamdance one year when my documentary was up there. And uh, it's, it's this heartbreaking tale of, of this, of this uh, kid, uh, this guy gets killed, and the woman that killed him is pregnant with the baby. And the whole movie is the parents of the guy that got killed having to contend with this woman that they keep letting out of prison and dealing with uh, custody issues with the kid. And it's this terrible, heartbreaking tale that I won't ruin it for anybody that's listening to spoiler. It's on, should be still on Netflix if you guys want to watch it. Uh, but that ultimately led to legislative change that, uh, in a big, big way. And because it was such a powerful documentary, and that was really one of the films that, you know, have really motivated me to try to do this because there's a bit of a burden. You know, I wasn't some amazing athlete at SC. I got to start under Pete Carroll, and I got to, to play. And, um, you know, I'm not somebody that's going to be, you know, posted on the walls in the history or whatever. <laughs> but for my position as a filmmaker and as a former player, I, I, I feel a bit of a responsibility to tell this story because it's, it's, it's right on the tips of everybody's tongues right now. And the NCAA... You know, you can look at what's going on with, like, EA Sports and the video games and the big suit with O'Bannon. And I think that's fascinating because, <laughs> I mean, I played myself in a video game once, and I was terrible, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I had to substitute myself in, and it took me, like, three seconds just to make a right turn. Like, my body would turn, <laughs> and then my right head would turn, <laughs> and I was like, okay, I can't make a play on this thing. I don't like it. I don't like how they, I should sue them for misrepresentation, you know, <laughs> not for money, for misrepresentation. Um, so like, like that whole element is, is just one of the elements that everyone's worried about because it could lead to an overall problem, especially with the big, you know, the, the, the Tebow clip that they used a couple of years ago that they're going to say is going to be uh, kind of a linchpin that could bring it down. But okay. I don't think it's going to, it's not going to make the house of cards topple. It's really not because they're dealing with things that are too big of a gray area right now. And play, paying players and trying to figure out that system, uh, it might be an eventuality. I don't see it happening in the next decade, but I do see um, change and reform in players' rights and, uh, in terms of health and the way that they can control their name and likeness. I see reform for that. I think that's a possibility that people can agree with. Okay. Um, and when, when people watch this, when you, when you, I'm sure you're going to get the funding you need and everything's going to get done. And sometime in 2014, people exactly. go. Exactly. Everybody listening needs to go on Kickstarter. Yeah, get on Kickstarter. Exactly. Check it out. Yeah, but exactly. you know, it'll be 2014. The, the documentary is released. What, what do you want like the, the college football fans? It doesn't have to be specifically USC fans, but what would you want them to kind of walk away with uh, for most of their mind? I know you said awareness, but is there anything else that you want them to kind of come away with from this this documentary you know i, I think i think you know uh peeling back the curtain of the college athlete is is important because there's a lot of a lot of work uh and elements that go into play and i'm not just talking about football and basketball i'm talking about all sports and all athletes there's a lot of things that a lot of people don't know about there's a lot of hardships the stories that these come from and almost every one of them get injured in their life and and uh 
you know, I think for the people that have kids and that play sports and, you know, you have, you have what are called, you know, the trophy kids, those parents that really push their kids at all these sports to, to excel. And, uh, you know, sometimes they, they don't see what the big picture is. You know, I was in urgent care. I had the flu really bad this last fall, and I went in there, and there was a kid in there who had a knee injury um, from water polo. And uh, I was just trying to say, hey, you know, if, if the opportunity arises, you know, where you can just be a, be a student and not have to be a student athlete, you know, and, and not shoulder the burden, you know, of, of having a one-eighth scholarship and having to do 40 hours a week. But I said, if you love it, you got to do it. But if at the moment you don't love it, you know, think about focusing on school because that's where your future is going to be. And I wasn't trying to coach the kid. I was trying to give him a little bit of a different perspective. Um, not to say that being a college athlete is a terrible thing, but if, if you don't love it, um, you know, you're going you're gonna to be dealing with lots of repercussions down the road. And the mother kind of chimed in, and she was like, oh, well, well if he hates it, he's, he's definitely going to keep doing it because he, he doesn't, he's not allowed to quit at anything. I'm like, oh, God. Okay, I already see the therapy bills just piling up on this kid in about 20 years. You know? I mean, I'll tell you what. I still wake up every August and sweat because of and, and sweating, not in actual sweats, but uh, <laughs> just completely drenched in sweat because I still am in football camp. You know, Pete, uh, Pete's camp and John Robinson's camp wasn't really that big a deal. Uh, Paul Hackett's camp, you talk to anybody that was there for that. Uh, and I was – the only defensive player that didn't miss uh, a practice for the two years where we had 24 days of three days straight. Wow. Three days. Yeah. Three days. Yeah. And of course, you know, by like, by like day two, you, you got 15 D linemen and, and by day two, you got five, you know, and I was the only guy that could go down the line and play each position. And, uh, and so I never got a playoff. And, oh, you know, those, those three and a half weeks feel like, like three and a half years because the, the, the way that the, the pain and the things you have to fight through in that are, are so unbelievably, um, you know, damaging to the psyche that you don't realize it, that it's like some, you know, I'm only sweating because it's some level of post-traumatic stress that I've retained, you know? Yeah. Uh, it got to the point where my third year, I actually um, almost went into cardiac arrest because I had been pushed too hard. Wow. And, uh, you know, they, they put they put nine IV bags in me, and they ran out of bags, and I was still dehydrated, and my lips were purple. I had no pulse, and uh, you know, I was practicing the next day. So, <laughs> jeez, well, there's a lot of problems that are kind of built in the system. And uh, yeah, look, uh, Pat Hayden just addressed recently, probably one of the first schools that have done it, that they're doing all they can, um, you know, with concussions and looking into CTE and all that. And, you know, I really hope that when uh, the doc takes off, um, you know, when we get our funding in place, that I'll be able to have a heart-to-heart to talk with him, you know, in general, just to see what can be done. Because I think there's some things that can be done, and I know there's some things that will be difficult to make happen. But, but I think as a former player, he, he's going to see that side because all the guys he played with, when you come to the Trojan football one night, you know, half the guys are limping and, and have canes and, you know, that's what I see me in 30 years, oh. you know, I don't know what I'm going to do with both my knees, but I hope, I hope, uh, you know, when, when it's all said and done, I hope, I hope people can change their perspective on, on what a college athlete really is, um, that, that they're not somebody that's privileged and, and taking money handshakes and, and sexually assaulting people and doing all these negative things that, that the majority of them are people that are working really hard, uh, to get an education and, and it's a full-time job. Uh, that, that they're paying their body with. They're paying for education with their body. And 
And as, as a young kid, you don't know and understand the long-term repercussions that come with that. And I think it'll give people a little bit different perspective on maybe the way that they push kids in their sports. All right. Well, it's called the NCAA documentary called The Business of Amateurs. You can go to kickstarter.com and do a search for NCAA or Business of Amateurs, and it should pop up uh, right away. They are a little over 10% of their goal with about a month to go. Definitely if you're a fan of college football, check it out. It looks like it's going to be a really interesting project with Bobby DeMars and, uh, and Zach Jerome. But uh, thanks very much for coming on and, and thank, sharing thank some insights. Thank you insights. so much, Ron. I really appreciate it. And uh, if you get a chance to check out Zach Jerome's blog, uh, if you just type in Lost Angeles into Google, it'll be the first thing that pops up. So it's like Los Angeles, but a T after the LOS. And, uh, <laughs> probably one of the most brilliant, funny guys on the web. And he'll be uh, helping and pushing this, as well as the Bachelorette season that starts. He covers that as well. Yeah. <laughs> Which is funny because I got to tell you, like I never watched the show, and now I have to watch the show because <laughs> because he's so funny on the blog that it makes the show more than watchable. <laughs> then you got to like <laughs> compare the two for what he's saying and then watching. The yeah, show. you got to know what he's talking about because it's brilliant. You know, he's he's infatuated with the whole thing. You know, they're going to take a helicopter to another helicopter, which then goes to a helicopter museum. You know, <laughs> <laughs> he he is. It's hilarious if you just read. His blog. He's a member of the Peristyle on uscfootball.com. He's been on there. He posts usually he posts a link to his blog and gets a lot of responses and people just laugh. I, it's one of those things where you read and you're kind of thinking like, I think I'm a pretty funny guy, but yeah. what I have thought of, like, where did that come from? I could have never thought of that. Oh, I know, I know, and that's <laughs> why he's really the only partner qualified uh, <laughs> to, to hang on this project because you got to have somebody that has a fresh perspective, insight, and is really well-informed and edu- educated, um, you know, because not a lot of people have done the research to know what's going on, you know. But he's fantastic, and I'll believe me, I'm, I'm on his blog every day just to see if he did something funny. That's awesome. Yeah, well, I mean, you're a, definitely a funny guy yourself, Bob. So it's, it's great that you two are kind of teamed up on this. I mean, I know it's a serious subject, but it's funny you have two guys that are that have a great sense of humor creating such a you know, important piece here that's, that's really a serious yeah, well, subject. There's a, there's a line. I don't know if you've seen the documentary Bigger, Stronger, Faster. I have not, um, no. It's a fantastic documentary. A good friend of mine named Chris Bell made it. Uh, and it's, it's really the, the, the perfect uh, epitomization of the tone of what we're going for because it's, it's really fresh. It's really light. It's very serious. Um, there's times where it's poignant. And there's times where it's funny. Uh, but it, it really covers all the issues really well and, and isn't, uh, so subjective in the message that it's trying to push. It takes a pretty honest approach from all the angles. So I'll have to check um, it out. Maybe get a chance to look at that. But that's really the tone that we're going to be looking for in, in the business of amateurs. Okay. Well, I know there's people, I mean, that are buzzing about this already. I think that people are going to be excited to see it. And with Twitter and, and Facebook, Instagram, all that kind of stuff, I think once this does get out, once this gets out there, I mean, it's just going to, people are going to be talking about it all over the Internet. So I think it'll be uh, – a big success, sweeping, sweeping the nation, I'm sure. But I'm really excited to see uh, what happens with this project stuff. So definitely, we'll we'll keep in touch with you, Bobby, and uh, kind of give the fans. Thank you some so updates. much, and yeah, since uh, yeah, you always get you always get first dibs when something pops. All right, <laughs> well, appreciate it, man. Thanks. Well, thanks. Really appreciate coming on the show, and uh, best of luck. Great, thanks a lot. All right, I look forward to checking out your site more. Cool, thanks, Bobby, and everyone else. Thanks very much for tuning in to the Peristyle Podcast. We'll talk to you all next week.
You've been listening to the Peristyle Podcast presented by uscfootball.com. Be sure to tune in next week for the latest news on Trojan football and recruiting. And don't forget, you can automatically download the podcast directly to your iPod or MP3 player for free. Just click the iTunes link on peristylepodcast.com or search for Peristyle Podcast at the iTunes Music Store. 